0: The following podcast discusses the details of true crimes that may be triggering or upsetting for some listeners, and we encourage anyone who needs support who has been the victim of a crime to seek help from local authorities, mental health professionals, or support groups. Listener discretion is advised. Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, monsters who committed horrific serial murders in the 20th century in the U.S., Latin America also has had its share of killers who have terrified the area for many years, but most people outside the region have no idea. Today, we tell the story of one monster who may have brutally murdered as many as 300 victims in South America, and they call him the Beast. This is the Mysteries of Latin America podcast. Welcome to the Mysteries of Latin America podcast, where we tell you the stories about the myths, legends, and mysteries of North, Central, South America, and the Caribbean. My name is Andrew Colon. On April 22, 1999, in a rural area of Vicencio, Meta, Colombia, a man kidnapped a child that he planned to rape and murder. A young man who heard the child's cries for help saved the child by throwing rocks at the attacker who managed to escape. A manhunt was organized, using police cars, taxis, and private vehicles, and the attacker was arrested as he came out of a field outside of town. This was April 1999. The attacker was held under suspicion until October 1999. And by that time, he had confessed and given vital information on the brutal rape, torture, mutilation, and murder of 147 minors, mostly young men and boys, making him one of the world's most prolific serial killers in modern history. The man the child identified as his attacker came to be known as La Bestia, or the Beast, and this is the story we're telling today. You'll know who he was, some of what he did, how he just missed getting caught early on, how he finally was caught, where he is now, and the surprising twist his future might hold. The man who is known as La Bestia, the Beast, was born Luis Alfredo Garavito in 1957 in Genova, Quindillo, Colombia. He's the oldest of seven siblings born to Manuel Antonio Garavito and Rosa Delia Cubillos. From an early age, it's alleged that his parents were physically and emotionally abusive to him and largely neglected him and his brothers and sisters as his father was reported to be a violent alcoholic and his mother was a prostitute. Now, for those unfamiliar with Colombian history, and here I have to include myself, armed conflicts have raged in Colombia between the government of Colombia, far-right paramilitary groups, crime syndicates, and far-left guerrilla groups beginning in the 1960s and until the present, where over 200,000 people have died in the conflict, most of them civilians, and where more than 5 million civilians have been forced from their homes generating the world's second-largest population of internally displaced persons. This conflict caused the Garavito family to be uprooted often, which only added to the family chaos. Luis Garavito was also reportedly a victim of sexual abuse, beginning at age 13 by a local pharmacy owner and neighbor during his visits to the pharmacy for vaccinations. The neighbor, who was a close friend of his father's, allegedly tied Garavito to a bed before sexually assaulting him and proceeding to burn him, cut him, and bite him during repeated incidents of molestation. From that moment on, he said that he suffered from attacks of anger, paranoia, and psychosis. He also suffered from extreme violence at the hands of his own father, as he was repeatedly burned with candles, cut with razor blades, and tied to a tree to be brutally beaten. He also accused his father of repeatedly molesting him as well. How did it all begin? According to Garavito, with the abuse he suffered at the hands of his father and others, it was in his teenage years that he began to feel what he called strange compulsions. At the age of 14, he was caught by his family trying to molest a 5-year-old boy. Garavito was reprimanded by his father for not choosing a woman to sexually assault instead of a young boy and for displaying homosexual tendencies and behaviors. With Garavito's apparent homosexuality causing frequent arguments between him and his father, Manuel, he was finally evicted for this homosexual behavior involving the young boy. And from then on, he said he knew he was sexually attracted to young boys and men. Now before we continue, I've decided to tell you about some of the murders that this man has committed, but I'm not going to go into gory detail as to what he did. And that is because I really wish I never read those details myself. As a parent, and even though my kids are in their 20s, it hurts your heart to read what he did to those children. Just know it's horrific, and absolutely the stuff of a father's nightmares. According to Garavito, it was at the age of 23 when he began to torture and rape minors aged 6 to 16. By October of 1992, at the age of 35, he had killed for the first time, and by 1999, he had raped tortured, mutilated, and murdered somewhere around 200 minors in Colombia, Venezuela, and Ecuador. And we have to say somewhere around 200 minors, because the true number has never been completely confirmed, but police and journalists who have investigated Garavito and covered this story for years fear the number is many, many more. How did he find his victims? First of all, Luis Garavito was terrified of the dark. So he would approach his victims in broad daylight in public places, ranging from the countryside to crowded city streets. He would often drink brandy near school areas in the afternoons and evenings to wait for unknowing children. He'd offer children easy work for easy money and even disguised himself as various characters, ranging from a Catholic priest to a school teacher to an elderly man to more effectively lure in his victims to prevent suspicions about his activities from developing, Garavito would change his disguise and his location often. Once he had the trust of a child, Garavito said that he typically walked to a secluded spot encouraging them to talk about their personal life until they were tired and vulnerable and that made them easy to handle. He says that when he felt the compulsion to rape and kill, he'd drink from a sip to a half a bottle of the cheapest brandy or Aguardiente, a high-alcohol liquor famous in Latin America usually made from cane sugar, that he could find. He'd then take his victims to out-of-the-way rural locations he'd already staked out. Once there, he would begin threatening his victims with a knife, as he sexually abused each one, and then he would begin stabbing them, finally stabbing them in the stomach or chest or neck, until they bled out. Beginning in October of 1992, Minors between the ages of 6 and 16 began disappearing rapidly from the streets of western Colombia. Because of the decades-long civil war, though, many children in Colombia were poor, orphaned, and not likely to be reported missing at all. That changed when several women began reporting their children missing, and a group of children discovered a skeleton in the town of Pereira while playing in the first week of November of 1998. Authorities didn't really give the find too much priority. Remember, there was a civil conflict going on, and it wasn't the most uncommon thing to find a dead body. But all of that changed in mid-November 1998, when mass graves of as many as 36 children were uncovered, almost all of them boys, with signs of binding sexual assault and prolonged torture. Then, they discovered a total of 41 other children in the department Arrizaralda, and 27 more in the neighboring Valle del Cauca. This astounding number of missing children called for an immediate widespread investigation, as these killings weren't confined to a specific area. To have an idea of the savagery involved in the killings, authorities initially thought that the killings might have been done by a satanic cult or an international child trafficking ring. The prevalence of nylon cord and liquor bottle caps found at all the crime scenes, however, convinced the National Prosecutor's Office to quickly build a profile where it was likely that one man was responsible for the killings. On February 6, 1999, the bodies of two children were found lying next to each other on a hill near a sugarcane field. The next day, only meters away, they discovered another child's body. All three bodies had their hands bound and had been abused. The victim's necks and bodies were severely cut and bruised. This time, the murder weapon was found in the same area as the bodies. And either the killer passed out drunk while smoking or purposely set the sugarcane field on fire. Fleeing quickly, he left behind money, shoes, glasses, clothing, receipts, and handwritten notes. From his glasses, the authorities were able to determine that the killer was probably middle-aged and that he had an astigmatism in his left eye. His shoes also showed that he walked with a limp and probably was about 1.6 meters or five foot five inches tall. In their haste to make an arrest, authorities falsely arrested a local sex offender named Pedro Ramirez who had a limp in his right foot. As two boys disappeared in the town of Pereira, a young boy had identified him as the man who tried to assault him. Ramirez was kept in jail until more children began to disappear near Bogotá, the capital of Colombia. Meanwhile, the investigation's head detective, Aldemar Duran, had begun to suspect Garavito from the evidence the task force had collected. From a note found in the sugarcane field, Garavito's girlfriend was contacted. And yes, I said girlfriend. Although he identified as homosexual, Garavito would sometimes live with women in an attempt to seem normal for a time or even try to raise a family. But it never lasted long. This girlfriend told police that she hadn't seen him in months. She did, however, give the police a black cloth suitcase that Garavito had left in her possession which contained a number of his belongings. These items included pictures of young boys, detailed journals of his murders, tally marks of his victims, and bills this new information led them to Garavito's residence, but he was long gone by the time they got there. Detectives believed that Garavito was probably traveling around Western Colombia for work and took advantage to find his victims. After investigators were able to track down Garavito's girlfriend and then his sister, Ramirez, was released. So that was an example of police following the evidence and doing their jobs. If they had done this from the start, He would have been caught midway during his seven-year killing spree, which lasted from 1992 to 1999. It was 1996, and in the town of Tunja, police arrested a homeless man outside of a decrepit old hotel looking for a young boy named Ronald who had gone missing. Ronald's aunt had seen him talking to the man outside of a bar, and police took him to the station to interrogate him. After talking with him at length, Police and the local district attorney were convinced that this man was nothing more than a penniless drifter who didn't know anything about a missing child. So they let the man go and continued with their investigation. But this man was no homeless drifter. He was staying at the dive hotel that he was arrested in front of. If the police would have done any real investigative work, they would have found out that he had been staying at this motel and if they would have checked his room and specifically under his bed they would have found the bloody knife used to kill Ronald. They would have caught a killer and would have saved nearly 100 more victims. Knowing that at some point authorities would eventually figured out it was he who killed Ronald and that he certainly would have been captured and lynched if he would have stayed behind, he left town that night and in his haste left some of his personal possessions behind and escaped to the town of Muso. One of these possessions was his cedula, his national ID card with his name Luis Garavito. But that's not the end of shoddy small town police work. Before he was finally caught and charged in 1999, Luis Garavito had been arrested in the town of Pereira no less than 10 times for different crimes, mostly for drunken disorderly conduct and fighting in the streets, where he'd be arrested and put in a drunk tank and released a day or two later after convincing authorities he was just a drunk transient named Bonifacio Moreira. Somehow he got an official ID with that name on it. Bonifacio Moreira was a real person. He was a minor small town politician from Tunca and looked enough like him and was about the same age. According to the Colombian journalist Rafael Poveda, who interviewed Garavito regarding his crimes, the killer is a chameleon of a person and could probably act his way out of most situations and certainly did, convincing anyone who mattered that he really was Bonifacio Moreira until he was caught. A Colombian joint task force investigating the serial murders arrested Garavito in the town of Villavicencio where he went about his life as Bonifacio Moreira. It wasn't until investigators found dozens of newspaper clippings about the murders in his suitcases and recognized him under his real identity because someone associated with the investigation who was from the town of Tunca, where the young boy Ronald was killed, knew who the real Bonifacio Morera was. With all the evidence they'd built up by this time, they arrested Garavito and were able to hold him under suspicion as they built their case. But they were under a deadline. If they weren't able to formally charge him for the murders by mid-July, three months after he'd been arrested, he would have to be set free. On July 4th, 1999, just seven days before he would have had to have been set free, the task force formally charged him as Luis Garavito. So what cemented the case? DNA. Garavito's DNA was found on the victims, along with other items left behind at the crime scene, like his eyeglasses, clothing, and the caps of liquor bottles. Police scheduled the entire jail where Garavito was being held to get an eye exam. This way, they could definitively match the eyeglasses to Garavito. By making it mandatory for all the prisoners, it reduced Garavito's suspicion and kept him from lying about his eyesight. His height of 165 centimeters, 5 foot 5 inches, and his limp were also crucial in connecting him to the investigator's findings. While Garavito was out of his cell getting his eyes checked, detectives took DNA samples from his pillow and living area. The DNA found on the victims and the DNA found in Garavito's cell were an exact match. After days of intense interrogation, Luis Garavito finally confessed to an immense number of murders and gave authorities the locations of bodies that had not yet been recovered and they were convinced they had their man. In court, Colombia's top prosecutors successfully argued that Luis Garavito brutally murdered 172 children. It's believed that the number is much higher than that as Garavito is confessed to more murders, bringing his total real murder count to well over 200 children. And finally, in the year 2001, after one of the most followed criminal trials ever in the country, Luis Garavito was sentenced to 1,853 years in prison, the highest prison sentence in Colombian history. And then comes the twist that turns my stomach. That sentence of 1853 years was commuted to only 40 years, because the maximum sentence possible at the time was 60 years, and because he cooperated with identifying other serial killers while in jail and for good behavior. So from 1853 years to 40 years. But it gets worse his prison sentence will be finished in 2039, at the age of 82. But, under Colombian law, he'll be eligible for parole this year, because he's already served 60% of his sentence, and he's fulfilled conditions of good behavior, education, his confessions, and for helping find other killers. In 2021, there was a request to release Garabito early, due to good behavior in prison, but a judge blocked the request, on the grounds that he hadn't paid a fine to the victim's fund. If he would have paid the fine, it is possible that he could have been released under a technicality in Colombian law. Now, before we get up in arms, and I know I did that until I did some more research, the possibility of him actually getting out of jail alive is slim to none. And there are several reasons, as there are efforts right now both in the Colombian justice system and the country's Congress to make sure that doesn't happen. So that this doesn't happen in another case, in July of 2021, Colombian laws were changed to mandate life in prison for child murderers and abusers. As Colombian laws don't work retroactively, they won't work in this case, but future cases shouldn't be able to take advantage of loopholes in the justice system. Also, there are still at least 20 judicial processes against Luis Garavito that ensure that he won't get out anytime soon. In addition to that, the country of Ecuador has sentenced Garavito in absence to another 22 years in prison for the rape and murder of children there and has asked for his extradition to that country to face justice. Either way, as soon as I hear anything about how his parole hearing went, I'll let you know in an updated version of this podcast. Today, Luis Alfredo Garavito is currently serving his sentence at La Tramacua Maximum Security Prison In Valladupar in Northern Colombia. He's 66 years old and is currently suffering from leukemia, he's already lost an eye to cancer, and his health is deteriorating to a point that he requires daily blood transfusions. In prison, he's held in isolation from all other inmates because it's a foregone conclusion that he would be killed immediately, and threats and attempts have already been made on his life repeatedly. Prison justice for harming children Garabito, however, remains hopeful, and I'd say delusional, that he'll be released and that when he is, he has plans to run for Congress in Colombia, enter the ministry as a Pentecostal pastor, and marry a woman, in rejection of his self-admitted homosexuality, in the hopes that he'll be able to help abuse children upon his release. I didn't go looking for a story about serial killers. I was researching podcast ideas and was looking for stories about mysterious legendary creatures in Latin America, like maybe another Jorona or Chupacabra story. But I chose to Google the phrase, monsters, in Latin America, and the first thing to come up wasn't about a fictional monster or folktale, but the real thing. A monster they called the Beast. This man, if we can still call him that, is truly a monster. He's a monster who didn't only destroy the lives of at least 200 children, but hundreds of families and communities in Colombia, Ecuador, and Venezuela. That's what happens each time a child is killed or harmed. Families, towns, and whole countries can be affected for generations. One more thing I can say about this before I go is this. Take care of the children. Yours especially, but not just yours. I do feel it takes a village to raise a healthy and happy child these days, no matter where you are. It could be in Latin America or it could be in Silver Spring, Maryland, where I grew up. Violence can be cyclical within relationships and intergenerational, passed from parents to children and sibling to sibling. In the case of Luis Caravito, the psychological, physical and sexual abuse he suffered as a child, which absolutely does not absolve him from any of the horrific things he did, certainly laid a horrible foundation. And even though he actually did get counseling, psychotherapy, and was medicated in different moments of his adult life, it obviously was either too late or incomplete and wasn't enough to free him from his demons. Now the last thing I'll say is this. Please take care of yourself. If you suffer from emotional or mental issues, please get help any way you can. From local authorities, mental health professionals, centers, or support groups take care of yourself. And thanks for listening to the Mysteries of Latin America podcast. Make sure to listen to, download, and share the podcast so we can keep telling the stories about mysteries, myths, and legends of Latin America for the rest of the world. I'm Andrew Colon. Adios.